On a quiet hill in a small Massachusetts town are planted the remains of some of the best-known authors in American literature. The cemetery itself is in many ways the vision of these individuals. Their vision was shaped by German Romantic philosophy, the same Romanticism which drove a new movement in American cemeteries, the rural cemetery movement. And nowhere in the United States is this better expressed than at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Concord, Massachusetts. The cemetery, still active today, is remarkable, not just for the people who are buried there, but for how their ideology shaped the cemetery itself and continues to capture the American imagination more than 150 years later. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So it's appropriate that this episode is finally getting recorded in October because <laughs> this episode seems to be haunted um, by bad luck, mostly. But mostly what I have found with this episode, and this is now my third time recording it, let's hope that the third time is the charm, is that Sleepy Hollow at its core... <laughs> I don't want to say it's not that interesting because it's a very interesting cemetery, but when you start to read into what makes it interesting, it really is one of those cemeteries that's mostly interesting for the people who are buried there, not necessarily for the cemetery itself. Indeed, much of what's been written about the cemetery is either apocryphal or not well substantiated. And any articles that you read in popular publications always come back to the same basic facts. They talk about Authors Rich, and they talk about the Melvin Memorial. So I had to work pretty hard to dig a little bit deeper. And I apologize, because at the end of the day, I am going to have to talk a little bit more about biographical information than I normally would. But Sleepy Hollow is a cemetery that captures people's imagination and draws people in because of who is buried there. Going back to Concord, of course, most of us are probably familiar with Concord from our American history classes. The Battle of Lexington and Concord, the shot heard around the world, the commencement really in a major way of the Revolutionary War. Some of the things that I'm going to be talking about today only loosely overlap with that. Most of what I'm going to be talking about with Sleepy Hollow Cemetery is going to happen far after that point, but I want to talk a little bit about Concord's history of burial, and to do that, we do have to go back before the Revolutionary War to 1677. The city of Concord is old, (laughs) Very old, even by Massachusetts standards. And we first know of a burying ground being established there in 1677. Concord, which is west of Boston, becomes a crossroads market town. It is near the conjunction of two major rivers, makes it a very profitable and continuously inhabited town. The first burying ground does still exist in Concord. It's known as the Old Burying Hill. You cannot miss it. If you go to Concord today and you go to Monument Square, 
the hill rising above it is the old burying hill. This was also the site, as with many Massachusetts towns, of the original meeting house, which no longer stands. There is a much more modern Catholic church that stands beside the old burying ground that is not associated with it historically. If you have listened to the episode that I did about Plymouth and the burying hill in Plymouth, Massachusetts, this is a similar circumstance. Where the meeting house was on the high ground along with the powder magazine. So that way it was defensible should the town be attacked. The other, less obvious reason is that hills are not terribly useful for farming. So they are a good place to plant bodies instead. And the other thing is, and this is something that comes up in all the literature, in the snowy New England winters, because the sun hit the hill more directly, this was the first place that the ground thawed in the spring so that you could take the bodies out of the receiving vault and you could bury them more easily. How much faster did any of this happen? Hard to say. But we do know that this was in continuous use for the better part of almost two centuries. It was not the only burying place. So the old burying hill is used exclusively probably for around 20 years, possibly longer. Again, these things are a little bit difficult to tell, particularly because a lot of the early tombstones do not survive, but also because at least we know with the second cemetery, which is the South Burying Place, that many of the original tombstones were actually lost, even if they did exist. So the South Burying Place is on the other side of the mill pond. The legend goes that this was to serve the portion of town that was on the other side of the mill pond because the dam that went across the mill pond was too narrow for the coffin cart to get across. So the idea was is that this second burying place served that part of town so that way they did not have to come back into the town center. This is one of these stories that's really hard to tell. Because we know for a fact that there were bridges, as I already mentioned, this is at the confluence of multiple rivers. If you drive through Concord today, there are bridges. This seems kind of like a flimsy excuse, but I almost wonder if maybe there was a single family that lived on that south side that had a number of deaths and it just made more sense to start a second burying ground. We don't really know. There are no great records for this. These stories, as apocryphal as they sound, I've actually pulled from the master plan for Concord Cemeteries, which is published on their website. It was developed back in 2018. I've read multiple accounts of the same information. But also in this report, there's a report that in the South Bering Place, close to 300 tombstones were destroyed during the 1938 hurricane. This seems really hard to believe. That's a lot of tombstones. If so, there are no fragments, there are no surviving evidence, particularly because I have seen pictures published in books in 1938 showing damage and all of the trees that came down at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. So were maybe 300 tombstones destroyed in Concord overall, not in one particular cemetery? I don't know. Uh, It's one of the downsides to doing this work remotely and the fact that I am very much at the mercy of the information that I'm able to gather. But 
just based on the size of the cemetery, it really seems unlikely that they lost 300 stones just in that South Bering place. What starts to happen is that the town continues to grow. This is happening even in the midst of the American Revolution once 1776 comes. And Concord has essentially reached its bursting point by the turn of the 19th century. So much so that the decision is made in the 1820s that they are going to have to start a new burying ground. And that is exactly what they do in 1823 is that they purchase land for a new burying ground. And this is an important milestone to remember because what is happening at this time is that we also have essentially the town is of two minds. They need a burying place. They need some place to bury people. But this catch as catch can just keep opening up new cemeteries is not really working with the growth of the town and it's not really growing in a way that's going to allow them a ton of space in the future. So while they open the cemetery and they realize that they're going to need to put some bodies there, at this point, they start a larger discussion about what the long-term plan for a cemetery should be. And in this respect, I think that they are taking a page out of New Haven's book, that they are looking at this and they are trying to look multi-generationally at how to have a plan for cemeteries. This being 1823, we still don't have a great model beyond the New Haven burial ground, what's today the Grove Street burial ground. This is still almost a decade before Mount Auburn is founded. So they have the idea that they need a better plan, but they also are desperate for extra space. What happens next is that they start to consider their options. And this is where we're going to diverge a little bit because I want to bend off and I want to talk a little bit about what else is happening in Concord at this time. Because aside from a voracious need for burial space, Concord is starting to develop under an ideological growth pattern. And I'm going to start this story with a man named Ralph Waldo Emerson. He went by Waldo and he is born in 1803, right at the turn of the 19th century in Boston. He is the son of the Reverend William Emerson, a Unitarian minister, and his wife, Ruth Haskins. He is one of eight children, only five of whom lived to adulthood. In true 19th century fashion, three of these siblings will actually die of tuberculosis, and his father will follow not long after when he is just eight years old. Young Waldo is a pretty voracious learner. He attends Boston Latin the oldest secondary school in the United States, and will eventually go on to Harvard. He graduates young and is the class poet and decides that he wants to go to divinity school, just like his father. He will be ordained in 1829. Young Ralph Waldo, he struggles with his calling as a minister. In fact, he once said, quote, I have sometimes thought in order to be a good minister, It was necessary to leave the ministry. This profession is antiquated. In an altered age, we worship in the dead form of our forefathers. This is a slippery slope into what will largely become part of the Second Great Awakening, part of a radical form of Christianity that indeed at some points was so radical that he actually denied the divinity of Christ. 
while he's raised a Unitarian, and if you know anything about the Christian sects, the Unitarians are about as rock and roll hippie as it gets when it comes to Christianity. They were not radical enough for him. And Ralph Waldo, in his studies, has started to pick up on a number of wider patterns, philosophies and ideas, particularly from Germany, that he finds do not align with any of the traditional Trinitarian divinity that he has been raised under. Now, like any young man, he also falls in love with a woman named Ellen Louisa Tucker. He also marries her right around the time that he is ordained. But being the 19th century, you know this isn't going to end well. Within two years, she dies at just the age of 20. Along with his siblings and his father, her death will greatly affect Ralph Waldo Emerson. In fact, she's buried in Roxbury near Boston, and he supposedly visits her grave almost daily. Up until the point that on the first anniversary of her death, March 29, 1832, he opens her coffin to look on her face. I've said it before, I'll say it again. In the 19th century, people were much less grossed out by the sticky, ooey gooeyness of death than we are today. And in fact, seeing the processes of death, seeing the ravages that time wrought on the body, was not something that necessarily repulsed people. In fact, they considered it to be a part of the mourning process. But regardless, this deeply affects him. This affects the way that he sees mortality, and it affects the way that he sees death. And he begins to see death as a return to nature. He begins to wholly believe in pantheism, that God is not separate from the world but rather he is an expression of the sublime, that nature is the soul of infinitude. With this ideology, he makes a move. And he makes this move based on the movements of Ezra Ripley, who was his stepfather. In 1834, just two years after he opens up his late wife's coffin, he moves into the Old Manse. Now, the Old Mance will probably be best known later for its association with Nathaniel Hawthorne, who writes a book called Mosses from the Old Mance. And guess who he rents the house from? Ralph Waldo Emerson. So following his stepfather to Concord, Ralph Waldo also heads there. And he begins to really change directions with what he wants to do with his life now that he has left the ministry. In 1833, right before leaving Boston, he held the first lecture of his career. And this would be the first of over 1,500 lectures that he would lead throughout his life. Today, in an age of streaming, we don't really understand the attraction of lectures, but these were one of the great interests of the 19th century. Lectures would be paid between $10 and $50 per lecture. And this is what people did for entertainment. People would speak on a wide variety of topics. They would give philosophical musings. And Emerson, with his booming voice, honed at the podium when he was a minister, was one of the most popular lecturers that ever came out of Boston. Within a year of moving back to Concord, he has bought his own house, and he has married his second wife, a woman by the name of Lydian. Her name was actually Lydia, but he thought Lydian sounded much more poetic. That was exactly what these people were like. 
So now he is touring on the lecture circuit, making a very healthy living. And he starts to expound on these new ideas. This idea of the sublime. Now, this idea of the sublime is really important because it ties very much into this idea of the Second Great Awakening, German Romantic philosophy. He starts to talk about the way that the sublime, which is his other word for God or for the divine, plays into the understanding of the world. In 1836, he is going to publish Nature. One of his short works, which will very much define the philosophy behind transcendentalism. As he begins to gather a new group of followers to him, he will eventually begin to push out new publications. So in 1837, he publishes something called The American Scholar. The American Scholar is an incredibly important work. And this is a work that, you know, when you read about Emerson... There is no faint praise. Oliver Wendell Holmes called the American scholar the intellectual declaration of independence. Friedrich Nietzsche would later call Emerson the most gifted of Americans. Walt Whitman just referred to him reverently as the master. And it's in the American scholar that the groundwork, not just for transcendentalism as an ideology, is laid. But the philosophy that really will draw people to Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he said, quote, In all my lectures, I have taught one doctrine, namely the infinitude of the private man. So I have to pause here because I need to remember that not everybody necessarily remembers their American literature from high school. And I don't know when the last time was that you picked up Goethe. So transcendentalism, for those of you who may not remember, is one of these really early and really significant movements in American literature. So everything that I'm talking about here, the American scholar, nature, then the works that will come later, self-reliance, civil disobedience, Walden, all of these works center around this intellectual ideology that is starting in Concord and very much has its nexus in Ralph Waldo Emerson, his training in the Unitarian Church that he combines with this German Romantic philosophy from people like Goethe. And the basic tenets are a couple of things. First of all, it believes in this infinitude of the individual. Transcendentalism very much sees society and the creations of man as being corrupt. That we come from a pure place. The sublime is the purity of nature. And that as we have lost that purity and connection to nature, we have been corrupted as a result. So seeking out nature, seeking out your own self-reliance, not relying on others or the institutions of society is the purest and most absolute form of expression. As a teenager, this was something that I really struggled with. So if it doesn't necessarily seem terribly logical, that's okay. (laughs) Because it combines a lot of different ideas. It combines social practices with philosophy, with divinity. Probably the most classic example is going to be Henry David Thoreau's Walden. 
The idea that he left society and went out in the woods to live by himself to truly experience life. He didn't believe that life could be found in the creations of man, but rather in the pure expression and understanding of nature. I've always said he conveniently did that in a place that he could just go down the street and still get a pastry if he really wanted to. So how much did it actually cost him? But Concord, Massachusetts is going to be the basis for this. And if you have been listening for a long time, if you have been listening to my discussion of particularly the rural cemetery movement, you definitely are going to see a lot of connection in this. So Emerson is essentially the big daddy of all of these transcendentalist followers that he starts to draw in. In addition to Henry David Thoreau, he will influence a wide range of individuals, including Bronson Alcott, father of Louisa May Alcott, Margaret Fuller, who will be the first editor of The Dial, which will become the Transcendentalist Literary Magazine, among others. There are a number of poets, philosophers, all of whom will be heavily influenced by Emerson, including future generations, like people, including Walt Whitman, who I already mentioned. So he draws them all in, and these folks, while they are brilliant, are terrible with money, are not responsible. Henry David Thoreau very famously gets arrested for failing to pay his taxes. Emerson is constantly bailing people out because despite the fact that he is also a philosopher and a dreamer, he is one who has a steady income from his lecture circuit, and he ends up bailing a lot of people out. But there is this rich community where everyone is always welcome at the Emerson House, and it becomes this real hub of intellectual thought and it starts to churn out a lot of publications. Quickly redirecting back to the main story about the town of Concord and its cemeteries, Emerson, as one of the most prominent citizens in town, also gets pulled in for double duty and is asked to step up and become a part of the cemetery committee. Remember, he entered town in 1834, about 10 years after they had purchased the new burying ground. But still, they could see that that wasn't going to work as a long-term solution. One of the most frustrating things about doing the research for this is that there is a great deal of talk about the two individuals who designed Sleepy Hollow. And I think it's an important distinction to make because what is known as the New Burying Ground, founded in 1823, will become Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. And I like to bring this up because... Not every rural cemetery, not every cemetery that's founded during this era is entirely new. Often, they take the new principles that had been popularized in 1831 with the opening of Mount Auburn, and they apply it to pre-existing burial grounds. And so what we get at Sleepy Hollow is really an amalgamation of a need-based cemetery with some of the principles of the rural cemetery movement with the additional vision that is brought down by Ralph Waldo Emerson. So it is designed by H.W.S. Cleveland and Robert Morris Copeland. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is the idea that, you know, supposedly Ralph Waldo Emerson is the one that brings these designers in. And I have read a great deal about both of these individuals and the fact that he brought them in because 
of their publications because of the ideas that they espoused. And I'm not denying that, but I will say that it's really hard to substantiate these. So first off, Robert Morris Copeland supposedly has written this pamphlet called The Useful and the Beautiful. And at least from the reading I have done, it seems like he is the true Emerson devotee here, that they went hand in hand. Now, if you can find a copy of The Useful and the Beautiful, please, I beg of you, send it my way. Because you are a better researcher than I. Because I have found a million references to this, the idea that the useful and the beautiful was inspired by Emerson, that it was a manifestation of his philosophy about nature. Can't find a copy of it anywhere. Not to save my life. And then later, I will see a lot about H.W.S. Cleveland and the fact that he has written a few words on the arrangement of rural cemeteries. And so they make it seem like these two have written these really impactful pieces of literature, the useful and the beautiful, and a few words on the arrangement of rural cemeteries, and that they have created a cottage industry out of this. Well, doing a little bit of digging, H.W.S. Cleveland, which I'll get more to both of them in a minute, he did write that. What it is, though, is not a book. It's a 12-page pamphlet complete with illustrations, which is not written until 1881. So this is a pamphlet that's not written until almost 30 years after he creates Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. So I'm not saying that some of the same ideas aren't there, but it certainly wasn't an influence on him getting selected for this particular job. As for Robert Morris Copeland, I couldn't tell you what's in The Useful and the Beautiful and how it impacted it. What I can tell you, though, is that the two of them definitely have ideas about sustainability that I think would have largely appealed to Emerson's philosophy. What they don't have is they don't have a ton of experience designing cemeteries. Indeed, this is the first cemetery that HWS Cleveland will design. Now, he will go on to design more than a dozen other cemeteries. Several in Massachusetts. He actually did a lot of the design work on Swan Point Cemetery, if you have listened to the episode that I did about my thesis topic. He designs Hillside Cemetery in St. Paul, Minnesota, Marionette Park, Illinois. He's designing all over. Midwest, East Coast. He even does an expansion at Graceland Cemetery in Chicago. But all of it starts with Sleepy Hollow. So I think that a lot of people, when they write about H.W.S. Cleveland and the impact that he and Robert Morris Copeland had on Sleepy Hollow, they're, they're kind of putting the cart before the horse because this is where they started. What was it about them that really attracted Emerson and why did he convince the town to hire them to lay out Sleepy Hollow? Well, Emerson believed very strongly that this particular piece of land was special. And that if they were going to use it for a burial place, that it should be an area that was useful for both the living and the dead. The cemetery today is quite striking because if you go in, there is a large natural amphitheater. Authors Ridge, where Emerson and all of his compatriots are buried, is actually on the far side of the amphitheater up on a hill. 
What's interesting is, is that that land had been favored by Concord for many, many years. In fact, Nathaniel Hawthorne talked about building a house on Arthur's Ridge. Never happened. The second is that they are espousing a new idea and one that separates them significantly from other rural cemeteries. And that is that the only plants should be native species versus ornamental or exotics, which were popular choices in many other cemeteries. The third was that around the water feature, land was set aside, which would eventually become the Great Meadows National Wildlife Refuge, a protected area that continues today. Emerson was also very concerned about the rapid deforestation of Concord. As the town grew, they were losing more and more of their green space. So he saw a cemetery as a way that they could actually preserve more of the landscape. So versus other rural cemeteries where the landscape had been largely cleared and then replanted with decorative, ornamental plants, this was largely allowed to grow natural. Which may not seem like that crazy an idea, but it actually was at the time. Now, this is right on the edge of that early first burst of the rural cemetery movement. Starting in 1831 with Mount Auburn, it sort of continues through the Civil War. Well, Sleepy Hollow is officially founded in its modern iteration in 1855, so right on the cusp of the end of the early rural cemetery movement. Keep in mind that after the war, cemeteries will be simplified and will start to go towards the landscape lawn or lawn park model. But I think it's incredibly important to emphasize the fact that Emerson did not just see this as a practical undertaking. This was not just, oh, we need a new cemetery. He saw this as a early step in the conservation movement in America. Some of the groundwork for what would later happen with the national parks that would later happen across the United States really find some of its nexus here with deliberate planning of public spaces in a small town in Massachusetts. I think to get a better picture, what will really help you is to hear in Emerson's own words his dedication of the cemetery which happened on September 29th, 1855. Citizens and Friends The committee to whom was confided the charge of carrying out the wishes of the town in opening a cemetery have proceeded so far as to enclose the ground, cut the necessary roads, and laid off as many lots are likely to be wanted at the present. They have thought fit to call the inhabitants together to show you the ground. Now that the new avenue make advantages appear, and put it at your disposition. They have thought that taking possession of this field ought to be marked by a public meeting and religious rites, and they have requested me to say a few words, which the serious and tender occasion inspires. And this concourse of friendly company assures me that they have rightly interpreted their wishes. It is the credence of men which more than race or climate makes their manners and customs, and the history of religion may be read in the forms of the sepulchre. There never was a time when the doctrine of the future life was not held. Morals must be enjoined, but among rude men they were rudely figured, under the forms of dogs and whips, or of an easier, more plentiful life after death. And it was impossible for the savage to detach the life of the soul from the body of his conception. 
and therefore he took great care for his body. We get a little bit rudimentary here with our interpretation of past cultures. Nature secures the performance of every necessary function by overloading the tendency. Thus, the whole life of man in the first ages was ponderously determined by death. And you know the polity of the Egyptians, the bylaws of towns, of streets and towns, respected burial. It made every man an undertaker, every palace a door to a pyramid, every king or rich man was a pyramid heir. A successful general was a likely candidate for an obelisk. The labor of races was spent on the excavation of catacombs. The chief end of man was to be buried well. The arts most in request were masonry and embalming, to give immortality to the proper body. The Greek, with his perfect senses and perceptions, had another philosophy. He loved life and delighted in beauty. He set his wit and taste like elastic gas under these mountains of granites and lifted them. He drove away the embalmers. He burnt his body. He built no more of these doleful mountainous tombs. He adorned death, brought wreaths of parsley and laurel, and made it bright with games of strength and skill with chariot races. Nothing can excel the beauty of his sarcophagus. He carried his arts to Rome and built his beautiful tombs at Pompeii. The poet Shelley says, These white marble cells so delicately carved, contrasting so strongly with the plain dwelling houses, that they seemed not so much tombs as voluptuous chambers for immortal spirits. And the modern Greeks in their Roman songs ask that they may be buried where the sun can see them, that a lindo window might be cut in the sepulchre from which the swallow might be seen when he comes back in the spring. Christianity brought new wisdom, but learning depends on the learner, so more truth can be conveyed than the popular mind can bear. And the barbarians that received the cross took the doctrine of the resurrection that the Egyptians had done before. It was an affair of the body and narrowed again by the fury of the sect, so the grounds were sprinkled with holy water to receive only orthodox dust. And to keep the body still more sacredly safe for resurrection, it was put up in the walls of the church, and the churches of Europe are really sepulchres. Meantime, the true disciples saw through the letter of the doctrine to eternity, which dissolved the poor corpse, and nature also gave grandeur to the passing hour. They wished their memory to be sweet, that holiness should perfume their graves. In these times, we see the defect of our old theology, its inferiority to the habit of thought. Men go up and down, science is popularized, the irresistible democracy, shall I call it, of chemistry, of vegetation which recomposes for new life every decomposing particle. The race never dying, the individual never spared, has impressed on the mind of the age of futility of these old arts in preserving. We give our earth to earth. We will not jealously guard a few atoms under immense marbles, selfishly and impossibly sequestering it from the vast circulations of nature, but at the same time fully admitting the divine hope and love which belong to our nature, and wishing to make one spot tender to our children, who shall come hither in the next century to read the dates of these lives adorned also. 
Our people, accepting this lesson from science, yet touched by the tenderness with Christianity breathes, have found a mean in the consecration of gardens. The simultaneous movement has, in a hundred cities and towns in this county, selected some convenient piece of undulating ground with pleasant woods and waters. Every family chooses its own clump of trees. We lay the corpse in these leafy colonnades. A grove of trees, what benefit or ornament is so fair and great? They make the landscape, they make the earth habitable, their roots run down like cattle to the watercourses, their heads expand to feed the atmosphere. The life of a tree is a hundred and a thousand years. Its decays are ornamental, its repairs self-made. They grow when we sleep, they grew when we were yet unborn. Man is a moth among these longevities. He plants for the next millennium. Shadows haunt them. All that ever lived about them clings to them. You can almost see behind these pines the Indian with bow and arrow lurking yet, exploring the traces of the old tale. Again, not so great with the past lives. Modern taste has shown that there is no ornament, no architecture alone so sumptuous as well-disposed woods and waters— where art has been employed only to remove the superfluities, to bring out the natural advantages. In cultivated ground, one sees the picturesque and opulent effects of the familiar shrubs, barberry, lilac, privet, and thorns, when they are disposed in masses and in large spaces. What work of man will compare with the plantation of a park? It dignifies life. It is a seat for friendship, counsel, taste, and religion. I do not wonder that they are chosen, badge and point of pride for European nobility. But how much more are they needed by us, anxious, overdriven Americans, to staunch and appease the fury of temperament which our climate bestows. This tract fortunately lies adjoining the Agricultural Society's grounds, which I mentioned that's going to be the future nature preserve, to the new burial ground, the one founded in 1823, to the courthouse and to the townhouse, making together a large block of public ground the permanent property of the town and county. All ornaments of either, too much, shall be value to all. This spot for twenty years has borne the name of Sleepy Hollow. Its seclusion from the village and its immediate neighborhood marked to all inhabitants as an easy retreat on Sabbath day or in the summer twilight. And it was inevitably chosen by them when the design of the new cemetery was broached, if it did not suggest the design, as the fit place for their final repose. In all the multitude of woodlands and hillsides which within a few years have been laid out in a similar design, I have not seen one so fitly named Sleepy Hollow. In this quiet valley, as in the palm of nature's hand, we shall sleep well when we have finished our day. What is the earth itself but the surface scooped out into nooks and caves of slumber, according to the eastern fable, a bridge full of holes, into one or the other of which all passengers sink to silence? Nay, when I think of the mystery of life, its round of illusions, our ignorance of its beginning or its end, the speed of changes of that glittering dream we call existence— I think sometimes 
that vault of sky arching there upward, under which our busy being is whirled. It is only Sleepy Hollow, with a path of suns instead of footpaths, and milky ways for truck roads. The ground has the peaceful character that belongs to this town. No lofty crags, no glittering cataracts. But I hold that every part of nature is handsome, when not deformed by bad art. Bleak sea rocks and sea downs and blasted heaths have their own beauty. And though we make much ado in our praises of Italy or the Andes, nature makes not so much difference. The morning, the moonlight, the spring day are magical painters and can glorify a meadow or a rock. But we must look forward also and make ourselves a thousand years old. And when these acorns that are falling at our feet are oaks overshadowing our children in a remote century, this mute green bank will be full of history. The good the wise and the great will have left their names and virtues on the trees. Heroes, poets, beauties, sanctities, and benefactors will have made the air tunable and articulate. I suppose all of us will readily admit the value of parks and cultivated grounds to the pleasure and education of the people. But I have heard it said here that we would gladly spend for a park for the living but not for a cemetery. A garden for the living, a home for thought and friendship. Certainly the living need it more than the dead. Indeed, to speak precisely, it is given to the dead for the reaction of the benefit of the living. Now, that's a little bit maybe more than I needed to read. But I think it's important to understand that he sees... The creation of a cemetery as the creation of a piece of green space that is for the benefit of the town. And he goes on to talk about how the school children will be able to take their lessons on the hills, that they will be able to study and walk under those oaks. I think it's a fascinating idea because this is something I think that is often not taken into account today when we talk about cemeteries as green space. And the value of them, particularly in urban areas. Now, even today, Concord, Massachusetts is far from an urban area. It's not. It's still relatively open. But you have to give Emerson credit because he saw the writing on the wall. The same thing that sent Thoreau out into the woods to live in the cabin at Walden Pond and the growth of their community was what drove that. Saw that it was changing, that it was becoming more commercial that they were not going to be able to keep the culture of that place quite the way that it was. And so in many ways, the founding of Sleepy Hollow, aside from need, is an act of resistance. And, you know, Emerson goes on to talk about how a cemetery is in many ways truly egalitarian and that the various styles of graves in the cemetery reflect the different ideas that the living have about death that they reflect people's different beliefs, different ideas, and that the grave is an equal place. Now, interestingly enough, and I mentioned this at the beginning, Sleepy Hollow is still an active cemetery. And based on their master plan, they do still have enough grave space to serve them for another 60 years. 
Um, they are definitely anticipating this and they are looking at options like Mausolea, like Columbaria, Scattering Gardens. They understand that they will run out of land eventually, but they, they have done pretty well. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that you do need to either be an inhabitant of the town of Concord or a former inhabitant if you would like the privilege of being buried there. The most expensive parts, unsurprisingly, are going to be this parts around Authors Rich. So this is probably a good point to pause and go back to the story. So after this is dedicated in 1855, the authors start dying. Margaret Fuller had actually already died in 1850 prior to the dedication of Sleepy Hollow. Because of where she died and the circumstances surrounding her death, she was actually buried elsewhere. If you want to visit her, you can go see her at Mount Auburn in Cambridge. Henry David Thoreau dies of tuberculosis, another tuberculosis death, very 19th century, at the age of 44 in 1862. Two years later, Nathaniel Hawthorne dies at the age of 60. Both of them are buried on Authors Ridge. Both of them have relatively modest stones. Definitely the most impressive of all of the stones, I guess individual stones, is going to be Hammerson's himself. Emerson will not die until 1882. He dies of pneumonia, but starting in the 1860s, his memory did begin to fail. And uh, unfortunately, rapidly through the 1870s, he does have considerable memory loss. I thought it was interesting that when he dies, he's buried in white robes that were given to him by Daniel Chester French, which if you're not familiar with Daniel Chester French, he is the man who sculpts Lincoln on the Lincoln Memorial. He is a sculptor also buried at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, and he sculpts the second best-known feature of the cemetery, which is the Melvin Memorial. It's a memorial to multiple sons from Concord who are killed during the Civil War. Just goes to show you that all of the artistic types in Concord all have some sort of connection. I never really got to the bottom of whose idea it was that they were all going to be buried in the same area. The last of the authors that will join them on the ridge is the Alcott family, which the Alcotts also have a pretty impressive family monument, but then Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women, she has a fairly simple monument. So she and her father, Bronson Alcott, actually died two days apart on March 4th and March 6th, 1888, respectively. And they are sort of the last of the burials on Authors Ridge. I can't tell if at a certain point the town of Concord thought it would be a good idea I feel like with the early deaths, you know, with Thoreau and Hawthorne, Hawthorne was reasonably well-known at the time, so that might have been a factor. I, I can't really tell, because all of these individuals had family that lived in and around Concord. So in that sense, the burial was just logical. But you can find newspaper accounts of people making the pilgrimage to see the graves of these authors, fairly soon after their deaths. So I think it was deliberate. Um, one of the more interesting facts I did find out, though, is that after Hawthorne dies, his wife, Sophia, and his daughter both moved to England, where they die later on. And it isn't until 2006 when they are brought back to Concord. So 142 years later, a crowd of about 300 actually gathered at Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, led by Joan Ensor, who at the time was 93, his great-granddaughter, and his great-great-granddaughter, Allison, excuse me, Allison Hawthorne Deming. So I think it's pretty cool that for both families 
and the public alike, fascination continues regarding this particular piece of property. You can ask the question, is it the chicken or the egg? Sure. Any small cemetery in any small town has a large collection of people who are from that town buried there. It just so happens that Concord is the type of town where there's a lot of exceptional people buried there. The same could be true of a lot of the early New England cemeteries, just because it was an early settlement. But the intellectual pantheon of Concord goes a little bit beyond that. And I think that the town continues to attract a certain type of intellectual crowd that will go on and on. There are modern authors, for example, Gregory Maguire, who wrote the book Wicked. He lives in Concord. So it is both the chicken and the egg in this case. Now, stepping back to Sleepy Hollow today, if you want to be buried near Authors Ridge, you can be. It is the most expensive part of the cemetery, and the most expensive option is to get yourself a personal mausoleum. And I always like to bring up these things because I think that people don't always understand the ins and outs of cemeteries, but I think the town of Concord has figured it out. They realize that mausoleums are expensive to care for. So it will cost you a cool million if you want to be buried in a mausoleum in the old part of the cemetery. Half a million for the mausoleum, half a million for perpetual care which I can't help but applaud because having done some research into other cemeteries, most of them do not require nearly that much perpetual care money, which unfortunately you do need that much perpetual care money. Now, I don't know if they've had any takers on this, but otherwise, if you are a resident or former resident, it's going to cost you anywhere between two and $6,000 per grave. Really, if you're interested in cemeteries from a cultural perspective, it's hard to beat. And if nothing else, you can look at a landscape that aside from the fact that it has more gravestones now, very much has the same feeling as it did on that September day back in 1855 when Emerson himself dedicated it. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or review. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, it does help make me much more searchable to people who are interested in cemeteries, morning culture, all of the wonderful things that we talk about here. I think that we made it safely to the end. I'm going to knock on wood. I think that we safely made it to the end of this episode on the third time through. Um, at this point, two episodes to go, and then we are we are out of the re-record cycle. I do have a new episode coming for you next week. Got a big anniversary. I'm not going to tease it quite yet, but I think you will enjoy it. Um, other than that, uh, going to be doing a little bit of traveling next week, but I should have the episode recorded and ready to go out before I leave. Follow along on social media, Tomb of the View podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. If you need to get a hold of me, Tomb of the View podcast at gmail.com. Other than that, stay safe. I will see you next week. I'm Liz Kloppen. This is Tomb of the View.